Friends, how close have you been to death? That question never seemed more real to me than one night when I was headed to seminary in Memphis, Tennessee. I was on the road a lot at the time. I was pastoring a small rural church there in Hamburg, Arkansas, engaged to the love of my life, Jessica at the time, and then staying a few days each week on the seminary campus. A lot was going on. Well, on this particular night, I had finished preaching the evening service at the church, and in leaving Hamburg, I took I-40 to go through Little Rock to get to Memphis, and as I approached the Memphis Bridge on this late, dark night, I hit a pothole. I went a little further, kind of in panic mode, and found myself pinned to a concrete median. And because I was so, class, uh, so close to the fast lane, because of the angle of my car, 18 wheelers were swerving just so they didn't hit me because of, again, how that car was angled, and I was terrified. I didn't know what I was going to do. So, very loudly, um, I called 911. Uh, you best believe I called my insurance company. More than any of those people, more than that insurance company even, I cried out to God in that moment to deliver me from what I thought on that night would be my death. And praise God, he delivered me that night. Some of you, though, have felt even closer to death than me in this church. A sudden diagnosis where you're waiting for the, ramp, the sand to run out, so to speak. A debilitating condition where you find yourself asking daily, how long, O oh Lord? Or hearing those heart-stopping words, he's not going to make it. She's not going to make it. And so you come to grips with one's own mortality. Friends, the inevitable reality for us all is that our death could happen at any given moment. So when faced with death, literally, or a situation that is so dark and so gloomy that it could be described as death, who do you cry out to for deliverance? And why do you cry out for deliverance? Our passage this morning addresses this reality head-on through a key moment in the life of Israel's king at the time, King David. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 30. Psalm 30. And if you happen to be visiting with us and you don't own a Bible, you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a pew Bible, a red pew Bible in front of you, and you should be able to find Psalm 30 on page 461. Again, if you don't own a Bible and you're here with us this morning, our church would love for you to keep that Bible as a gift from us to you as you reflect on Psalm 30 this morning. So take that home with you. Psalm 30. I want you to notice something immediately in your Bibles right beside Psalm 30 uh, that is known as the superscript. It's those words in all caps. Right beside the number 30, it says this, a Psalm of David a song at the dedication of the temple. Now, there's three words worth underlining, or three words, if you're a note-taker, is worth writing down, I think, in your worship guide. And those three words are simply this, based on the superscript. David, song, and temple. David, song, and temple. So Psalm 30 is penned by King David under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. He is writing and recalling these events from his own 
set of experiences from his own personal experience. And he's writing it down because this is something that would prove in his life to be unforgettable and worth writing down, not just for himself and for that current generation of Israelites, but the generations to come. So it's penned by David. Next, Psalm 30 is a song. It was a song sung by David in verses 1 to 3, then by the people of God in verses 4 to 5. So whatever happened in David's life was so impactful to him that it would be impactful to the people and the generations to come. But also notice the word in that superscript, temple. Temple. This was at the very heart of the people of Israel's worship because the temple signified the very presence of God in their midst. That was the great hope in the beginning of creation there in the Garden of Eden that God would dwell among his people. There in the beginning of Genesis, the Garden of Eden functioned as the very first temple where Adam and Eve enjoyed uninterrupted fellowship with God. Sin was not present. Everything was good. All was well. Then Genesis 3 happens, the fall. And as a result of listening to the word of the serpent over the word of God... God justly expels them from his presence, from the garden, and thus withdraws his presence from them there. And as scripture unfolds, we see the goodness and mercies of God and his desire to dwell among his people yet again through the tabernacle, which was an early portable temple. And finally in 1 Kings, with what would be the temple constructed and dedicated by the hands of David's son, Solomon, as promised in 2 Samuel 7. Again, it's worth noting that the people of Israel didn't worship the temple, this building, but God whose presence among them via that temple in their life and worship. It's not that God needed the temple to be present among Israel. God's existence wasn't dependent on a building like the temple that we, uh, that we hear of in Acts chapter 6, um, uh, that, that Stephen refers to in his speech towards his persecutors, or what we hear of even in Acts 17, where the Apostle Paul addresses the pagans in Athens who build temples to their pantheon of gods. And so in Acts 17, Paul affirms this reality in saying this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is self-existent, self-sufficient, and is not bound to physical buildings. In the life of Israel, in his goodness and mercy, he desires and chooses to dwell among his people. This is why the image of the temple there in that superscript is key to our psalm this morning. It was all about God's people enjoying and rejoicing in his very presence. We'll return to that superscript later on in the sermon, but for now let's read Psalm 30 together starting in verse 1. Starting in verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help And you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those 
who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Friends, this psalm is a matter of life and death. It pulls the curtain back for us to get a glimpse in the life of King David where his pride led to near death and how his experience of God delivering him from death was to be remembered and read and sung aloud. His deliverance was to remind the people of their deliverance. So as we feast on Psalm 30 together this morning, I think we could actually summarize our passage in this way. God's deliverance demands that we praise and plead to him while we await the promise of resurrection. I'll say that once more. God's deliverance demands that we praise and plead to him while we await the promise of resurrection. From that main idea, I want you to see three responses that stand out from King David and that also should stand out for us as responses to God our deliverer. Number one, Verses 1 to 5, praise God for his grace. That's where we'll be camping out the majority of our time this morning. Praise God for his grace. Verses 6 to 10, plead to God for his mercy. Plead to God for his mercy. And then finally in verses 11 to 12, praise God in unending gratitude. Praise God in unending gratitude. Now, let's look at the first one. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for his grace. Now, there's no doubt, as you examine verse 1, that this is a psalm of praise based on the opening words. David says, I will extol, that is to exalt, that is to praise. I will extol you, O Lord. Now, stop there. Notice that David is directing his praise towards God in these, three, in these first three verses. So, I will extol you, O Lord. Verse 2, O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help. Verse 3, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. David is showing us that praise always has a specific direction. It's not neutral, but has an intended audience and an object of worship in mind. In other words, everyone worships someone or something. David's praise here in verse 1 is Godward in direction. And the specific object of his worship that captures his affections is God himself. You see, worship is either pointing vertically before the Lord, horizontally or outwardly towards others or something, or inwardly towards ourselves. David is 
right here in verse 1, wanting to be unmistakably clear that he is not praising the mute idols of the nations. And he's not looking inwardly at himself. But rather, he is praising the true, speaking, covenant-keeping God of Israel, Yahweh. So right here we have David exalting God high in the air for all of the people to behold, and for good reason. Uh, Look at verse 1 again. For or because you, meaning God, have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. David believed God was worth praising because God lifted him up out of a helpless situation. If you know anything about wells to draw water from, the bucket by itself or left to itself does nothing. It has to have someone pull up and draw the bucket from the well in order to receive water. So in effect, what God is doing here is that God is drawing up the helpless King David like a bucket drawn from a well with a twofold effect in verse 1, right? So, so, so first, David's praise to God for this rescue mission. And then secondly, for the enemies of David to be put to shame. Now, we have no idea who these enemies are in verse 1, but what we know is that throughout David's lifetime, he had enemies ranging from a Philistine giant and Goliath, a king dominated by the fear of man and Saul, and a bloodthirsty son in Absalom, and many more. And these enemies in verse 1 would love more than anything for David to be dead, to gloat over him. Their joy is found in the death of the king. So David here is wanting to be crystal clear. His death means their joy, but his deliverance means God's praises, and therefore his enemies' shame, his enemies' silence, his enemies' defeat. My Christian friend, I hope you taste the waters of this gospel that we immediately have in verse 1. Like David, you too have an enemy that has longed to have joy over you and that longs to have the final word over your life. The great enemy, that great opponent known as death. But because God has drawn us up from our sins through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus, he has not allowed the enemies of sin and death and Satan to rejoice over you this morning. By, be, by being united to Christ by faith alone, we have victory over sin and death. His praise is our praise this morning. And like David, we should praise, or rather in praise, we should exalt this delivering God of grace. So let's look at the next two verses. O oh Lord my God, I cry to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from shale. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Here, there is no ambiguity as to who David is crying out to, just like in verse 1. He cries out in desperation for help. I mean, David is not trying to pick himself up by his own bootstraps. There's no amount of military strategy, human intellect, or self-works that could get him out of this pit, out of this mess, out of this situation. Only God could help him. 
Only God could heal him. Only God could deliver him. But deliver him from what exactly? Look at verse 3. It's the face of death. Words like shale, the pit, or verse 9, death, are all used to emphasize that David was close to death, much like standing on the edge of a plank on a pirate ship before hitting those swollen waters. So much so that when David references this moment in verse 3, he actually draws a line in the sand. He, he draws a contrast for us. In verse 3, we see David himself, whom God restored to life, and the dead, or those who go down to the pit. Death was so real to David here that he likens it all to God bringing up or raising up his soul from the dead. Whether it's God drawing up David in verse 1 or bringing up his soul in verse 3 from among those who go to the grave, David is wanting you this morning to see the resurrecting power of God and how this God, this deliverer, this God of grace raises those who cry out to him from death to life. This picture of death to life was evident in what Madeline Crawley read for us earlier in our service in Jonah chapter 2. Like David, Jonah... Called out, from, uh, called out to God from the belly of a fish that is likened to the pit, that is likened to Sheol. And as we will see later with David in verse 6, Jonah found himself to be in this predicament because of his disobedience towards the Lord. And instead of Jonah experiencing death and the full just weight of God's judgment against his sins, Jonah cries out to God to deliver him from this impending death. And in response to hearing Jonah's cry, God delivered him. And Jonah had a grateful heart. He was in a state of thanksgiving. And so he says aloud in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. So in our first three verses of Psalm 30, David is echoing along with Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. David isn't giving credit to his crown or his throne for deliverance but the God who gave him his crown who sits on the throne of heaven. So the first three verses in Psalm 30 have been David directing his praises to God. And now in verses 4 to 5, there's this subtle shift where David shifts from a solo in his song to now calling uh, the choir, the people of Israel, to join in praising God for this deliverance from death. Notice the shift in verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord. O you his saints, or holy ones, and give thanks to his holy name. David is urging the people of God to sing praises to the Lord as they remember and recall his holy name. Just the mere thought of God's name should cause the people of Israel and the king of Israel to sing vocally, loudly, with exuberant joy. God's holy name in verse 4 pointed the people of Israel back to that famous scene between the Lord and Moses in Exodus chapter 3, where God reveals himself to Moses as the self-existent, morally pure, transcendently separate, covenant-keeping God who always makes good on his promises. He reveals himself to Moses in that chapter as, I am the Lord. And he says to Moses, verse 15, this is my name forever. 
And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So when David calls God's people to give thanks to his holy name, it reinforces that God's name is to be praised forever because he's forever. And to be remembered with each generation. But it doesn't stop here. David gives a more pointed, stated reason as to why they are to rejoice in the God of all grace. Verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Maybe for some of you this morning, you stop at the first three words, and you're like, I'm good. I don't want to have too much to do with this God. You stop at those three words for his anger and conclude with religious skeptics that God is out of control and an impersonal cosmic killjoy playing an angry game of chess with the world. But nothing could be further from the truth of God's anger. Psalm 145, 8 to 9, reminds us that the Lord is gracious and merciful. Listen to this. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Notice that it doesn't say God is quick or waiting around the corner to be angry. It says he's slow to anger. He's patient with his anger. Because God is holy, since his holy name reveals his holy character in verse 4, his anger is embedded in tangible goodness and mercy and functions as displeasure towards what is fundamentally unjust. And what is fundamentally unjust towards a just God? Sin. So it is actually only right for God to be angry towards sin in the context of this fallen world. I love how David Pallison puts it in his book, Good and Angry. He says and argues that, that there is an inner logic of how God's anger works. And he writes this. God's anger always arises for a good reason. It's never a fit or a spasm or a bad hair day. It's never brooding hostility, just waiting to explode on some innocent, well-meaning bystander who happened to get caught in the crossfire. Rest assured, God's anger towards sin and the effects it has brought about in this world means that God cares about justice and love and light of the great injustice, sin. Notice in verse 5, all of these contrasts that are happening. God's anger lasts for a short duration of time, a moment. God's favor, God's grace, lifetime. Weeping lasts for a brief night, but joy comes with the morning, a new dawn. David is wanting to stress that, yes, God's anger towards sin is real, but it lasts a moment compared to the never-ending well of his grace towards his people in Christ. David is wanting to stress that the weeping that lodges for the night is real and painful and hard and sometimes physically and emotionally toiling. But joy comes in the morning 
on into eternity. Here's what God isn't saying. God isn't saying your weeping doesn't matter. God isn't saying that your weeping is altogether insignificant. Weeping here can be because of one's personal sin towards the Lord. That's what we're going to see in verse 6. That's what we see in Jonah 2. Or sometimes just because of suffering that comes from living in a fallen world. And for many of you, that weeping lately has been more real than ever. It's hard. Maybe it's weeping over the loss of loved ones this year. The weeping over a painful disease or sickness where you wonder if there are ever going to be better days. Maybe it's the weeping over a broken marriage. The loss of a job. A miscarriage. Infertility, loneliness, or even the spiritual lostness of a spouse, family member, friend, a co-worker that you share the gospel with over and over and over, and it seems to be going nowhere in your mind. Your weeping is real. Your weeping is hard. It reinforces that these things weren't supposed to be this way in God's good world. But all that pain that you are currently experiencing, all of that sorrow, all of that momentary affliction that you endure is met with this. Joy comes with the morning. If you are in Christ, an eternal weight of glory awaits you. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. David's momentary affliction was pointing him to an eternal weight of glory in the presence of God. And that same weight of glory is yours today by God's grace. Friends, how could we not praise God for his grace this morning? So in light of these realities in verse 5, I pray that our final song following the sermon would take deep root in your lives. Where that song says, your grace, a well too deep to fathom, your love exceeds the heaven's reach, your truth, a fount of perfect wisdom, my highest good. My unending need. That's my encouragement to you before we look at verse 6, before we transition into that second response in application. It's simply this sing and participate. Sing and participate. Like David in verses 1 to 3, and God's people along with David in verses 4 to 5, it doesn't matter what you sound like. Or if you have no vocal gifts, when we gather together as the people of God, this is not an American Idol tryout. At least I hope not. What matters is if you believe these truths in verses 1 to 5 in such a way that it wells up in you a spring of joy before the Lord. Sing to Him. Rejoice in him. Praise him for his favor. Praise him for his grace. 
And don't forget that this singing is not just meant, though it's the primary focus, to exalt, to extol God, but to lift up your brothers and sisters around you. It's meant to pick them up and encourage them in their pilgrimage towards heaven. Singing isn't about getting your fill as if singing is some individual spiritual transaction, but it's about building one another up in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. As you sing to the Lord, sing to one another in this gathering because you are in this together with them. And the same grace that you have received from the deliverer God is the very same grace that they have received and that they need to be reminded of, especially when they are weary. So sing. Also, member of UBC, participate tonight by being at the members meeting. Don't use that time as your chill time. Participate by showing up and with joy voting in new members who are marked by the very same grace of God, that unmerited favor in Christ. These new members, like David, have been brought from death to life. And that should more than anything cause us to prioritize this members' meeting as we hear updates from our elders. It's more than updates in the life of our church. It's welcoming in new members who have been buried in death and raised to walk in newness of life. So when our, member, when our elders recommend these members into the fold, this should cause you to praise God for his grace in the lives of these new members. So participate. And on top of that, aim to open up your home in hospitality to these new members so they can share with you the story of God's grace delivering them from death to life. Sing and participate. Second response as we reflect on God's deliverance in our lives should be this, found in verses 6 to 10, plead to God for his mercy. Verses 6 to 7. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. I think the net translation puts it a little bit more clear so we know what's going on. The net says this, in my self-confidence, I said, I will never be shaken. O Lord, in your good favor, you made me secure. Then you rejected me, and I was terrified. Why did David need deliverance to begin with? What led him to be on the verge of death? As you can see in verse 6, it's his self-confidence. It's his pride. David, for whatever reason, allowed his success and the promises of God to give him a big head. And that makes all the sense in the world now and when David references the Lord's anger back in verse 5. God was making known his displeasure towards David's sin. I mean, think about all that God had done for David up to this point. He sovereignly chose a shepherd boy to become king. He gave him victory after victory against his enemies. He granted him the promise that his heir would construct and dedicate the temple. 
And that from his line, even greater would come one whose kingdom will not end, that will not be shaken, that will be forever. He gave him success, blessings, the crown, and an abundance of provision. And in this moment, David begins to twist reality and starts to give himself credit like King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. At first, Uzziah did what was right in God's eyes. He sought the Lord. He pursued the Lord. And God gave him victory and success over his enemies. But in verse 16, it says this about Uzziah as he chose to puff up in pride and to indulge in self-security. That when Uzziah was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. A mighty king would die a leper because he would not repent of his pride and trust in God. Praise God, David's pride didn't last long. It took a near-death experience and one verse to realize his utter folly. Verse 7, By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Unlike Uzziah, David goes from pride to pleading before God for his mercy and prayer. He recognizes that all of these things, from all of the success to this near-death experience, has been caused providentially by the hand of God to bring him to himself. God caused David's kingdom to stand, and if he so willed, he could take his kingdom away. For God is described as one in Daniel 2.21 who removes kings and sets up kings. If we look closely at verse 7, we see what caused David to shake and tremble in terror. It was the fact that God hid his face from him. This is a way of showing that, that God was displeased and that David would not have the blessing of God's good presence if he would not repent of his pride. So the removal of God's presence in David's life was like a death blow to him. In verse 7, I can only imagine that David felt the stinging pain of when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden as a result of their sin back in Genesis 3. Instead, though, of wallowing around in self-pity or scrambling around to get himself out of this deadly peril, David recalls the content of his prayer where God brought him to his knees. It says this, verse 8, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. David knows he deserves to go down to the pit, that he deserves to be counted among those, the dead. David knows that he deserves the full wrath of God against his self-sufficiency. David knows that everything that has been given to him was from God. His blessings were meant for God's praises, and his deliverance meant God's praises. If grace is unmerited favor towards God's chosen people in Christ, then mercy here is not receiving the just due for our sins. So David pleads to God for mercy because God is merciful. Just like the tax collector's prayer in Luke 18, that's the type of posture David has before the Lord. He recognizes his sin. He cries out to God for mercy. So David here, with tearful urgency, 
recalls a series of rhetorical questions in that prayer before God. He can actually point to the content of his prayer. Look at verse 9 and 10. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. All of these questions should be answered, these rhetorical questions, with an emphatic and resounding no. Is there profit in David's death if he goes to the dead? No. Dead men can't praise God. Dead women can't praise God. Will the dust to which we shall return praise God? No. Dust will not tell of God's faithfulness. Here it is what is so striking. David's rhetorical questions before the Lord not only reveal a king convinced of God's mercy, but it reveals a king who is marked by godly sorrow compared to worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is only concerned with worldly consequences that deprive us of fleeting pleasures. It's fundamentally me-centric in nature. But godly sorrow, which is what we see from David here, is a brokenness over sin before the Lord and says, hey, whatever the worldly consequences are as a result of my sin, it's nothing compared to the eternal wrath of God that I deserve. It's God-centric. So David's prayer here reveals that in his plea for God's mercy, he wants to be delivered from death and restored to life for a singular purpose. To praise God and tell others of his faithfulness. Which is exactly what we see David doing personally in verses 1 to 3 and alongside the people of God in verses 4 to 5 corporately. David is praying, God, if you give me mercy, if you come to my aid, if you incline your ear to my prayer, I promise you this. I will tell others of your faithfulness so that your faithfulness towards me reminds them of your faithfulness towards them in bringing them from death to life. Beloved, let me ask you something. What would your prayer life say about God? Do your prayers, like David's here, do your prayers reveal a deep-seated confidence in the grace of God and a desperation for the mercies of God in your life? If I'm honest, my prayer life can feel a bit shallow at times. It can consist of really an Amazon wish list of stuff compared to asking God to prolong my death so that I can tell others of his faithfulness. Let me implore you this week, meditate on these verses and let them shape your prayers even today. Let those verses say something like, God, would you prolong my life one more day so that I can praise your name and tell others of your faithfulness? Could you give me one last pulse so that my heart can beat at the thought of your mercies that never come to an end and that are new every morning? Let me encourage you, as Dr. Don Whitney said last year in our evening service, not to keep praying about the same old things about the same old things but to use these verses to pray that while you remain on this side of eternity, to have opportunities to remind your fellow church members of his faithfulness in discipleship and to tell non-Christians of his faithfulness in evangelism. Pray for that. Long for that. 
We know that God delivered David from death to life. We know that God reminded David of both his grace and his new morning mercies. And as a result, David found himself to be in unending gratitude before this God. So our last response is found in verses 11 to 12. Praise God in unending gratitude. Now the actions of God on behalf of David have been all over Psalm 30. And they appear yet again in our final verses. And instead of David referencing his prosperity, just like in verse 6, by way of self-sufficiency, David gives all of the glory to God for this deliverance. Look at verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Just as verse 1 begins in praise to God, verse 12 now ends in praise to God. Verse 1 highlights David praising God momentarily, but verse 12 highlights David praising God forever, for an eternity. That weeping that David experienced for the night was likened to mourning or personal sorrow over his sin. That image that we have as well of sackcloth signified loss and depicted a state of mourning and personal grief. What we know is that God did not leave David in his weeping. God did not leave David in his sorrow. God did not leave David in sackcloth. God is a God of reversals to those who turn to him in faith. God turned David's sorrow into dancing. God removed his sackcloth and clothed him with gladness. And God delivered so that God would in return praise God with a grateful heart. God's deliverance in David's life wasn't to have a limited time frame, friend. This deliverance that led to a heart of gratitude was to be unending forever. David's praise wasn't just meant to last in the here and now, but rather serve as a preview into eternity. So we think about a grateful heart like this that sings the praises of God forever. If someone listened in onto your conversations with your spouse, your coworkers, your friends, or even when you're left alone with your own devices, would they conclude that you have a grateful heart towards the Lord? If you're a high school student this morning, you never get the car of your dreams, the friendship circles that others seem to have, or the college that you've always longed to attend, would others conclude that you're grateful? If your job is taken away, would others conclude that you're grateful? If you never get that pay raise or job promotion, would others conclude that you're grateful? If God chose not to deliver you on this side of eternity from your momentary affliction, would others conclude you are grateful? Gratitude in the Christian life says everything that we believe about God. And so if you're in the dark alley of ingratitude, what does that say to others about God? Well, instead of telling of his faithfulness, it declares to a watching world that you believe he's unfaithful. My Christian friend, don't let your flesh fool you that God is unfaithful. He is faithful, and therefore we should be grateful in all circumstances with little or much, for he has given us all that we need by union with Christ. 
So be grateful this morning. As we come to a close, I want to return for a moment to the superscript in your Bibles right beside the number 30. A psalm of David. A song at the dedication of the temple. God promises David that his heir would build the temple back in 2 Samuel 7. And that comes to fulfillment by David's son, King Solomon, in the future. Think about that. That means that Psalm 30 was written in hopes of that day, a day that David would never see. David would be dead when this song was finally sung aloud. He would never see the temple that signified, that earthly temple, he would never see it that signified the presence of God in Israel's midst. But he, in a greater sense, is now singing this song before the very presence of God forever, the God who delivered him. Psalm 30 was to be sung aloud at the dedication of that earthly temple to point Solomon and all who were present to God's deliverance in life and death. But like the tabernacle, the temple was not God's final answer of how he would dwell once more among his people. Instead of providing another physical building, God drew near to his people through that true temple that the earthly temple was pointing to in the person of Jesus. Jesus was not a building made of stones or wood, but was God in flesh and blood. Following the hills of the first recorded miracle of Jesus, turning water into better wine at the wedding of Cana, he began to cleanse the temple that was marked by corruption of all kinds. And in that scene, Jesus looked at the Jews and said this of himself, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it was taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, when therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In the person of Christ, full deity dwells bodily. He is the greater temple where the fullness of God dwells in flesh. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He is the place where we meet God. And this greater temple, this Jesus, would experience a deliverance that would shake the very fabric and foundations of history. Whereas David faced death, Jesus died on that cross. He cried aloud to the Father on the cross as he paid the penalty of our sins, taking on the full wrath of God as he stood as our substitute. This Jesus wept as he hung bloody on that cross on Good Friday, but joy came in the morning. It ended with an empty tomb on Easter morning. Like David, God drew Jesus up, raised him to life bodily on the third day, and as a result of God drawing his son up to life, Jesus guarantees that anyone that turns from their sins and trusts in him by faith alone, he guarantees this, a glorious bodily resurrection like his, that the world can never take from you. My Christian friend, joy comes in the morning. Great is his faithfulness. 
That first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 was preserved in David's deliverance and to ensure that David's greater son, Jesus, would crush the serpent's head. He would forgive sins. He would defeat death and conquer the grave so that we could be raised from it. And as a result of being united to this risen and reigning Jesus, we are described as his temple. If you belong to Jesus, his spirit dwells in you, which Jesus describes as far better to his disciples. As Paul reminds the church of Corinth, and by extension us this morning, you are that temple. And you will one day dwell with God in glory forever face to face. My non-Christian friend, listen, I was close to death on that Memphis night, and I felt it. I mean, my palms are sweating still thinking about it. I needed deliverance, and God graciously granted it to me. And he gave me greater deliverance from death to life, forgiving me of my sins and giving me new life when I was a junior high student upon hearing the gospel at a church service. That's the greatest deliverance I've ever had. That's the greatest deliverance that many in this church have had. You need this kind of deliverance before it's too late. Death is inching closer and closer and day by day. What will you do with this deliverance that God offers in Christ? I mean, will you seriously turn him away? Or will you let him turn your mourning into gladness? Will you let him remove your works of self-righteousness and let him clothe you with the righteousness of King Jesus? He will surely do it. And as if it couldn't get better, he guarantees you, like he guarantees any who turn from their sins and turns to this Christ, a future glorious bodily resurrection, not to everlasting contempt, but to everlasting glory. This is how that day will be described in Revelation 21, 3 to 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. UBC, resurrection is coming. My Christian friend, the weeping that you endure, you need to hear this. Resurrection is coming. Are you ready for that day? Let's pray.